Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute, uh, and I'm flying solo this evening. My co-host, Doug, is sick with the flu, uh, which will be somewhat ironic when we talk about uh, the content of today's program. But with me, uh, all the way from Vietnam, is Christopher Balding, who is a professor at Fulbright University, Vietnam, uh, most recently. previously a professor uh, in China for a while. We want to talk about that. So, uh, Christopher, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Josiah. So, let's, so, we, uh, so we want to talk about what's happening in China with the uh, coronavirus and other things and what that means. Uh, but first, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background about yourself. Sure. So I uh, I spent nine years in China. I was a professor at Peking University on the Shenzhen campus. Uh, and then I uh, was relieved of my duties in the fall of 2017 um, for teaching. Um, coincidentally, I, well, I think it's probably more than coincidence. Um, I forget the exact date, about uh, two weeks after uh, Chairman Xi was uh, was reelected for life. And I left China in uh, the summer of 2018. And I now teach at uh, the Fulbright University uh, Vietnam, which is in Saigon, um, which is I'm, I'm very happy to be here. This is um, to anyone that has been to Southeast Asia. I think it's, it's very a very easy region of the world to fall in love with. Um, the people are, are wonderful. The the food is great. And I think uh, in, in a bigger picture, you know, professionally for me, um, they share a lot of the same concerns about uh, China. Um, and uh, Vietnam is a decidedly pro-American country, um, surprisingly, I think, to many people. Um, but even in the broader region, uh, a lot of these countries, you know, even if they aren't as pro-American as Vietnam, um, they definitely, I think, are looking to America about how to, uh, with, the, with the concerns that they share about China. Yes. Uh, and I guess it, it is important to remember that while uh, the United States did fight a war against uh, the Vietnamese uh, coming up on 50 years ago now, uh, Vietnam also fought a war with China even more recently. So. <laughs> Yes, that, that was actually something that was rather surprising to me when I when I when I landed here is, you know, growing up as an American, you see all of these documentaries about the Vietnam War and that that's that's it's front and center in the American psyche. Um, and it, 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 it is important to the Vietnamese also, but there's a very different perception of America uh, within Vietnam, I think, than, than most Americans would would understand. And, and I've really been blown away by the by the strength and, and breadth of uh, pro-American sentiment here in Vietnam. Okay. And uh, how did you come to be a professor in China in the first place? Was that with Asian? Uh, <laughs> 
Actually, I, I can I can tell you uh, it, it, I, I fell into it. Um, I was uh, there were a couple of things that came together. Um, part of it was as I was on the job market, having received my PhD the year of the financial crisis. Part of it was uh, we had been we had stumbled. My wife and I had stumbled into uh, being in China. You know, no China expertise at all. Um, and so we said, well, hey, let's go back to China for a couple of years and and work there. You know, we we were uh, international adventures and we ended up staying nine years. Um, I have three children, uh, and all of them speak, you know, age fluent Chinese. Two of them go to a Chinese school here in Saigon. Um, and so it was, it was really, I'd love to say that there was some great foresight or background. Um, but that, 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 that really couldn't be further from the truth. Okay. Well, uh, Falling into things is uh, how I have lived my life too. That's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> I completely get that. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on there now. Um, obviously, you you've had a, a a kind of strange situation there over the last couple months. Uh, there's been an outbreak of the so-called uh, coronavirus, uh, which does not have anything to do with the beer, as a Texan, I should say. And the reactions of the Chinese government have been uh, perhaps mixed in the sense that on the one hand, if you look um, at some of the like public statements, Twitter accounts or whatever, I, there was some, oh, I, I'm forgetting that I'm blanking on the person's name, but, but uh, some high Chinese official was tweeting about how uh, actually, the coronavirus is less dangerous than the flu. A lot more people die of normal flu, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, at the same time they're doing that, uh, they have quarantined or restricted large segments of the country. So first, I mean, maybe just for some of the listeners uh, who may not be that familiar, and I, you know, I, I, we have to get technical or anything, but... Why do people care about the coronavirus as, you know, there's flus, other things that are going around? What, like, what's so, supposed to be so scary about it? Well, I think one of the, the – there, there's a couple of issues that, that – that make it scary that kind of are, are in this perfect storm. Um, number one, nobody really knows what we're dealing with. Um, to be frank, um, there's, there's a big unknown. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's been stories and studies, uh, by medical professionals around the world that this, uh, comes from snakes, that it comes from bats, that it comes from pangolins, um, that it, it, it is a bioweapon, you know, it, Nobody really knows yet where um, where it comes from. Um, it supposedly originated in a wet market um, in China, and just so your you know you know your listeners might understand, um, a wet market is uh, you know a, a simple way to think about it would be almost like a farmer's type of market. This is this is not you know you're going to Walmart or, or Whole Foods or something like that. This is um, this is a basically a farmer's market, but they also will serve really any type of meat um, that, that uh, you know, that there's a saying in China, in, in southern China anyway, is that, uh, is that the only thing they don't eat with four legs is the table. Um, and there's, there's different variations on that, okay? Um, so, and, and so it could have come from a seafood market. So one of the issues is, is that nobody really knows what we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, I think the second thing is um, about this um, is that 
even with the disease itself, once it's once it's in people, um, again, there's there's very mixed information for, and I, I should say for completely run of the mill type of reasons and potentially non run of the mill type of um, reasons. You know, just to get you know slightly technical for a minute, but a lot of times, for instance, when they do studies on diseases or um, or drug trials, for instance, they have very large sample sizes and they're able to compare them so that, you know, you're looking at 65-year-old men or 25-year-old females of certain health classifications and, you know, um, how much virus is actually in the blood and things like this. So you have very, very clear data. Well, one of the things that is happening here is that the data is really all over the place. So you actually have very different mortality rates, you know, in uh, in Wuhan. You have very different mortality rates in uh, Hubei, the province. You have very different mortality rates spreading out throughout the rest of China. And you have even more different mortality rates um, for people that have contracted coronavirus in the rest of the world. Um, and so part of the reason is, is there's all this information. There's no and nobody really knows what's uh, what's going on with uh, with the disease. And I think the third thing is uh, that is really playing a key part here is um, for probably run of the mill reasons and political reasons, um, the Chinese government has done a very poor job um, and they simply aren't trusted with the information that they are uh, that they're providing. Um, in the first uh, month or so that they knew about this, um, they basically covered it up. Um, within China, there's actually a lot of anger because key officials were actually having um, banquets and everything like that the same day that, that the first people uh, started dying and things like this uh, in the hospital. Um, and since then, you know, they've been, um, you know, they, they've not allowed uh, foreigners to go visit uh, Wuhan foreign medical professionals. Um, they've, they've done other things with the data. For instance, just yesterday, they announced a classific uh, change to the classification of uh, people that are considered to have coronavirus in Wuhan, and that, and that uh, raised the number of confirmed cases enormously just by a simple classification change. Um, and so part of the reason is, is that there's all this very nebulous information. And at this point, I think it's very fair to say that, that we really, we're, we, we still really don't know so much about what's going on. Right. So, I mean, I, I suppose, uh, you know, in the best of circumstances with something new like this, it would be very hard to figure out what's going on. And then you add in the complicating factor that the government of China uh, is not necessarily going to be honest about it. In fact, there's, I think there's a great deal, a great deal of evidence, you know, beyond just like the general fact that they're a, a communist uh, government, but you know, there's there's some things that people have pointed out where it's like you know statistically this doesn't make any sense that these numbers are the way that they are and so on and so forth. So it it does get to be a little hard to figure out what's going on. Uh, rumors, conspiracy theories, conspiracy facts <laughs> they tend to thrive in this sort of environment. Yeah, and I, I think what something that is Im important to know is that is that the the, the conspiracy theories, the questions 
that Americans might have about uh, what's going on in China with the coronavirus are not in any way limited to uh, to Americans. Um, you know, we have Chinese friends that, that keep me abreast of, of, you know, the chatter and rumors in, in China. And I can guarantee you that, you know, a lot, you know, the, the Chinese are pointing out the same discrepancies, um, the same problems. Um, and I, I was told a story many years ago by a Chinese friend about just how widely distrusted the government was on, on health matters. And the story that was told to me by a Chinese friend, um, even if it's not perfectly accurate, um, the, the legend is very instructive, was that after Fukushima, uh, the rumor started going around China that if you consumed large amounts of iodized salt, that would protect you from radiation fallout from Fukushima, um, the Fukushima nuclear uh, problem in Japan. And so uh, people started going to, uh, to uh, stores and purchasing uh, iodized salt in bulk. Well, the Chinese government actually accurately released a statement saying iodized salt will not protect you from radiation fallout if there is a problem. Um, And it should should be noted that that's a perfectly accurate scientific statement. What this did, though, is it prompted people in China to, in bulk, in mass, go to stores and purchase vast amounts of iodized salt because they did not believe what the government was saying. Right. And if if it's worth, if the the government is saying that uh, iodine in particular won't help you, then that's really what you gotta what, what you gotta try, right? That's it. That's exactly correct, and I think that's one of the one of the dynamics at, at play in this situation, where even if the government says something that is scientifically accurate, people don't have a good way of distinguishing is that accurate or not accurate. So let me ask a kind of a broader point about uh, the Chinese view of their government, uh, because, you know, it's clear, I think, that there does seem to be a lot of distrust there. And, of course, whenever you have a government that does not, you know, uh, put itself up for election and will use repression against criticism, other things like that, uh, raises suspicions about how much support that's out there. Uh, At the same time, you, you know, people often talk about a kind of implicit bargain uh, between the government and the people, uh, where you know the bargain being, as well, there there won't be that much uh, unrest. People will kind of go along to get along, and in return, the Chinese government kind of promises economic growth and you know just general competence, right? Um, so they can build, you know, they can build hospitals really fast, and you know if there are steps that can be taken, there you know they'll do it, and they don't have to worry about democratic bickering or whatnot. To what extent do you think that that is a real phenomenon? And if so, to what extent do you think that what's going on now might might damage that? So I think there's a, a couple of dynamics. I, I, I think absolutely the that phenomenon is is accurate. Um, that there that there's kind of been this gentleman's agreement to um, you let us oppress you, we deliver economic growth. Um, I do think that that is a, a generally accurate um, 
assessment. Um, I think, however, there are uh, factors that are now really uh, putting that gentleman's agreement under a lot of pressure. Um, just broadly speaking, China has reached a level of development where social scientists, economists, political scientists, others have found historically that people start looking around and saying, wait a minute, I want I want to be I want to be able to provide input to my government. Um, I don't you know, I want things beyond economic well-being out of my life, um, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the freedom of speech, you know, whatever it is. China's reached that level of de- about that level of development where people start asking questions. And I, I do think there is that uh, you're, this is the type of thing that um, that really brings a lot of that to the forefront. Um, I think the second thing is, is that a lot of that deal is predicated on the idea that, uh, for lack of a better term, the government is the smartest guys in the room. Um, the, to, to enter the civil service or the party in China um, is almost like joining the honor club, for the, the honor society, for lack of a better term. Um, the, every year, uh, there's a civil service exam um, that literally millions, uh, th- hundreds of thousands of people take. And the, the acceptance rate into the civil service, I, I, I think, is like 1% to 3% or something like that. It's, it's, it's incredibly low. Um, and, and in fact, the word Mandarin comes from um, what, uh, you know, you, you would be a Mandarin in, in the court. You, you would be essentially like a, a civil servant. Um, and, and so that's where that comes from. So it's almost like joining the honor society. And it's the same thing for, for joining the, the, the party. Um, and so if they don't, if they're not demonstrating that level of competence in handling things like disease, in handling things like healthcare needs and, and whatnot, um, that's causing a lot of people to, to question, well, wait a minute, why are we putting up with this if they're not, if they're not upholding their end of the bargain? Um, the last thing that I think is, is really straining this is that, well, growth is, is slowing. And, you know, um, the Chinese know that, you know, um, the official rate is different from the rate that they're seeing on the ground in economic growth. And so they're saying, well, wait a minute, why am I going to be putting up with these low levels of growth um, if, if they're not going to deliver their end of the bargain? So I think in many ways, there's, there's a number of things that are putting real stress on that, on that agreement. Yeah, and of course, to the extent that you do have significant parts of the country under various forms of quarantine, you know, that's going to affect the economic output. I did an interview today where they were talking about the effect that the quarantine would have on uh, battery production for electric vehicles, right? Just one random example. But, um, you know, it's like, uh, if you have a outbreak, you can't have a bunch of people mingling in, in factories. That's going to spread the virus. But if you don't, if you just shut down all the factories, then it's going to be a recession, I guess, or a slowdown. Yeah, what what we see actually in the economy right now is that uh, most of January. Um, so just just to let your your listeners know, um, China basically shuts down for a couple of weeks around Chinese New Year. It's kind of like that Christmas New Year's time period in the U.S., but it's probably a bit uh, a bit bigger. Um, 
uh, economic impact. Um, and so there's really probably about three weeks where the entire country is on very low levels of economic um, activity. And so, um, and, it, and it shifts every year by up to about a month. And so this year, Chinese New Year was on January 25th. And uh, the economic activity uh, into and even a day or two after um, uh, Chinese New Year this year actually matched pretty closely the patterns that we saw from previous years of Chinese New Year. Um, so when we look at January data, we're not really looking at the impact of the coronavirus. The micro data that we have access to post uh, post January 25th um, of, of daily like, you know, coal consumption and logistics deliveries and things like that um, actually tell us a very worrisome story that China, that the Chinese economy has basically been shut down now for a little more than two weeks at this point, um, where there is really effectively just nothing happening throughout of China, all of China. And, and that uh, and that for not just for China, but for the rest of the world um, is a very worrying economic story. Thinking about some of the possible ways that this could play out, is it is it possible that the you know if, if the outbreak gets worse and uh, the economy gets worse, so this kind of implicit bargain is violated, could you see some significant change uh, in in the government either? And and if so, what would that look like? Would it be kind of a situation where the party remains in charge, but, you know, it's a different set, set of people who take over and maybe they're, they're more reform friendly. Are there really uh, the, the sorts of civil society uh, institutions that could, you know, pose a challenge to the regime itself? So I would I would think myself, um, I would think myself, um, you were probably I would say at least a couple of months away from from the serious speculation um, that there would be a significant change in the government um, uh, from this. Um, if if this goes on, worse, yeah. Yeah, that this this would have to get uh, significantly worse. Now, I should say the, the the probability of that I think rises every day. Um, at this point, for instance, Hong Kong has said that they're not going to go to school until um, the middle of March at the earliest. Um, and I think um, Chinese schools Chinese schools for the most part, for instance, have have said um, March first or so. But even you know everyone I think expects that to be pushed back further. And schools are a very good barometer of how business is doing. Um, there's basically almost no manufacturing in China going on at the moment. Um, and so, you know, that's been going on for two weeks. Um, two weeks is, is going to hurt. Make no mistake about it. That's not going to be enough to really put pressure on the government. If we change two weeks, two months, that absolutely is the type of situation where you're going to be cause you're, you're going to be having enormous economic pain. Um, the banks at that point will um, likely have have essentially not received payments from a lot of their customers for um, for long enough that they will probably be essentially insolvent. So once you start looking at if this goes on two to three months, I think that's a very plausible scenario. Um, that would be a, not a very plausible scenario. I should say that the probability of that would increase where I think it's 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 uh, it's reasonable to to discuss that. What I think is is so unknown, 
and I don't, and, and nobody would really know this is if she was to leave, what would, what would replace him? Um, and there has been, I think, very credible information about all kinds of things from, um, you know, economic reformers that want, uh, that do not like um, what she has done to the economy, all the way through to, you know, much more nationalist, hardline um, military security hawks um, that see not having invaded Taiwan yet as, as, a, as a black mark on their record. Um, so I think it would be pure speculation, and we, we really have no idea what would replace that if, if it actually gets to that point. Yeah, so I, I think that raises a good point, uh, which is you can't, you know, if if uh, the current government were to uh, fall and be replaced by something else, uh, it would be a mistake to assume that that had to be more pro-reform, pro-democratic, or you know, uh, anything like that. It, it could be a more hardline military and/or nationalist thing as well. Absolutely. I mean, one one of the you know at at the end of the day, you know the 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 power in China rests with uh, with like you know it does in in really every authoritarian state, it rests with the military and security services, and so um, it, you know she has been able to bring them um, to to really uh, co opt them in, in different ways, and they stand behind him. Um, if things really get uh, get worrisome, the the first place you have to look is what is uh, what is the behavior of the PLA and, and security services? So let me ask about the broader region, uh, because, of course, one of the risks is that the virus will spread and the, the, sort, the levels of outbreak that you're seeing in uh, Wuhan and other parts of China, you'll see in other places. I know that there have been uh, a number of cases in Singapore, for example, uh, are disturbing and other other surrounding countries have placed travel restrictions or quarantines or other things like that. You're there in Vietnam. What is what is the reaction of Vietnam and you know in terms of this and some of the surrounding areas? So basically, they've gone to very similar type of restrictions as uh, as as most as most places. You know, similar to the U.S., um, there has been essentially travel bans. Um, you know, for instance, airline, um, airline and maritime travel um, are essentially blocking uh, visitors now. Um, in northern Vietnam, you can still walk across the border um, from China, um, but that's really about the only thing that you, the only way you can get into China. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, I think the the border is rural. It's not. Yes, the border the border is 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 rather rural. It's not it's not like a large urban center like you would find between, for instance, uh, Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Um, and I, I think, um, and it's diff it's it's difficult to know for for many reasons. But my sense is is that uh, is that uh, Vietnam has actually jumped on this rather early, um, and tried to and tried to get out ahead of this. Um, I can tell you, we uh, w we had to go to a doctor's office for an unrelated for a small unrelated issue, um, and this was three weeks ago now. So this probably would have been late January, very early. 
February, I think late January. Anyway, um, and the the doctor's office already had a tent set out, set up outside. Everybody had to use hand sanitizer, masks, you know, fever check, all that kind of good stuff before you even got into uh, before you even got into the medical facility. So, um, and th- this was. Um, you know, they were doing these types of checks. Um, schools have been shut down here for the most part. Uh, they've been working from home. Um, they're going to be starting up here next week. Um, but I think Vietnam and a lot of the region is, you know, to be honest, they, they kind of they kind of understand that this stuff is going to happen with China from time to time. Um, they almost expect it. And so there's uh, they, they keep a very close eye on this stuff and they try to get out ahead. And clearly they've uh you know some some have gotten through but i think they're actually you know most countries in the region are doing a pretty good job of 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 staying ahead of that uh so to end i want to switch gears a little bit and ask about a recent piece that you published uh in the american mind uh this was in response to senator marco rubio uh is given a, a couple of speeches and other things about the need to kind of reorient uh, America's you know, economic vision uh, and, you know, kind of adopt more explicit uh, what's known as industrial policy to try and compete with China. And uh, you had some kind of maybe a little bit of a skeptical take about that. So maybe maybe lay out what is your perspective on on that? One of the things that economists generally don't do well is they 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 look at, for instance, the opening of a of a trade deal or a free trade agreement or the opening of markets, and they say, "Look, everybody's better off," and that is that is rare. That is almost never wrong. Um, but the the issue is when when markets are opened, is that the whole of society benefits a little bit, and there is a large amount of pain concentrated upon a very small group. Um, for for instance, you know if 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 all of the United States can buy T-shirts better, everybody in the United States might pay fifty cents less for a T-shirt, but there's going to be T-shirt firms somewhere in America that go out of business because we're buying our T-shirts from someplace else. So all of society is better off, but there's also a very select group, a very small group of the entire population that feels a lot of pain from from that dislocation. So with the WTO, everyone uh, with China's entry into the WTO, there's been a lot of talk about um, the China shock and things like this. Um, And I think it's very important to recognize that out of that, whether it was with NAFTA, whether it was with uh, China, um, whether it's with other countries, that there is a lot of benefit to that. Um, that there's a lot of benefits that are gained, um, but there's also uh, that those groups of people that are that are distinctly hurt um, by those uh, by those agreements. So the question shouldn't be how do we protect the firms, how do we protect the broad markets. The question should be how do we help those people or firms or um, to to better adjust to the new competitive environment, um, the different types of labor uh, skills that they're going to need in the new economy. Um, Those are the types of questions we should be asking. Um, as, as, as a simple example, um, uh, President Trump has talked about bringing those jobs back to America. Um, and, you know, just to take a simple example, and I was talking with someone here, a, a garment manufacturer in, in Vietnam, and 
garment manufacturing is so thin margin and so uh, and becoming so highly automated, it's becoming it's uh, the cost pressures in Vietnam are rising to such a degree that there's uh, the garment is starting to fleet even lower cost places um, like Bangladesh and Africa. Okay, and so when we talk about jobs coming back to the United States, um, again to take a simple example, garment manufacturing is coming back to places in Europe. Um, and the United States, but and this is this is the important part. It's becoming um, it's becoming um, let's say a high tech or capital intensive type of process. Um, to take a simple example, um, you can actually. Uh, have machines and whatnot, and some of the these aren't cost these aren't generally cost competitive yet for um, for let's say mass market use, but they're they're of course trending that way very rapidly. Um, Adidas has opened up a, a store in Germany um, where you can essentially go in and, and pick out um, how you want your shoe made. You know what color fabrics, what type of laces, what type of foam uh, foam sole that you want, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and basically a robot will make that shoe for you. You come back in an hour and boom, your shoe's ready. Um, and so the types of labor that would be associated with that are not the low-skilled labor that is lost out from the China shock um, of years past, but the type of labor that would be required for that would be those that have technical skill of some, of some variety, um, uh, computer skill. So the question that we should be asking about America is um, how can we upskill and help those that have lost um, from uh, from this from this China shock from the from the pressures of the, of the labor market, and I think the last thing that that I'll that I'll add to that is um, when we look at the problems associated with China, we need to distinguish between we're going to protect an entire market or an economy and we're going to target specific instances of Chinese misbehavior. China subsidizes firms. China does all of these different things, which I think everyone agrees are problems. Rather than protecting a market or firms, we should say we need to better target that specific misbehavior um, to change that behavior rather than saying we're going to protect firms. So it's not that I disagree that there's a problem. It's what is the specific strategy to address that problem? All right. Well, uh, I think we'll end it there. Our guest today has been for Balding. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Josiah. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.